Ladies and gentlemen, um, it's a great honor and privilege for me to introduce Lord uh, Maria to you today. He's an entrepreneur with a real history of success. There aren't many people who kind of set up a company that satisfies the demands of so many people, and I'm sure there are many devotees <laughs> in the audience at the moment. I think Cobra has been a real, real success. But not only has he contributed in that way, but he continues to try to stimulate within the UK entrepreneurship from amongst people like many of you here, graduates of universities, undergraduates. He is a national champion for the Council for Graduate Entrepreneurship. And I think that really is a very important activity, particularly where we are in the economic climate at the moment. And I'm sure he's going to make something of that in his lecture, indicating just how important entrepreneurship is going to be for us if we're going to come out of this recession in a very, very positive way nationally. I think we must be very grateful to him for giving up his time to come to UCL to talk to us today. And I know that we're all listening, or going to be listening with great attention to all that he has to say. So can I really welcome him with great enthusiasm to UCL. Thank you for that uh, very warm welcome. Can you hear me clearly at the back there? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, okay. I'll try and speak. It's working. I'm not sure it is working. It is. If your recording is working, good. I'll shout back. Excellent. Um, I just want to check a couple of things. Uh, how many of you have actually uh, tasted Cobra beer before? Oh, very good. Excellent. Uh, uh, how many of you, and be honest with this answer, how many of you would like to start your own business one day? Good, good. Excellent. We're all on the same wavelength. Uh, I you know, am asked quite often, you talk about entrepreneurship. You encourage people to start their own businesses. How can you do this when we're in recession? How can you encourage people to start up a business at a time like this? Unemployment has probably already crossed 2 million and rising. There is no such thing as a safe job anymore. Maybe if you work for the government, but otherwise, there's no such thing as a safe job. The old concept of a job for life, history. How far are we going to drop as an economy? We can discuss that. But I believe that however far we drop, there is opportunity. And I speak from experience. Because when I came up with the idea of Cobra Beer um, as a student in London and at Cambridge, my idea was very simple. Um, it came from a consumer experience, like most business ideas. It came from like most business ideas, being passionate about one thing on the one hand and hating something on the other hand, and I've always loved beer. <laughs> and it came from, like most business ideas, hating and disliking a product or a service, and then thinking, I can do this better in some way. I can do this differently in some way. Maybe I can change the marketplace forever. So in my case, in fact, I stayed very close to here when I first came from India at the Indian YMCA in Fitzroy Square. And uh, there was a pub right across the road. And of course, you weren't allowed to have beer in the YMCA. Uh, so I used to go out to restaurants regularly, Indian restaurants. I used to go to pubs regularly. I, I would try all these famous, famous beer brands. Um, I can't name any of them, because that's unprofessional. <laughs> Do you know the ones I mean? Probably the worst lager in the world. 
reassuringly cheap. We could, we, we could go on all evening. Um, but I found a lot of the, the, the lagers that I was presented with, I would find very difficult to drink, very fizzy, very harsh, very bland, very bloating. And then the combination of these fizzy, bloating lagers with Indian food, well, was uncomfortable. <laughs> and an English friend of mine introduced me to real ale. Any of you here drink real ale bitter? Yeah, I love the stuff, absolutely love it. But when I tried to drink real ale with Indian food, I found the ale too bitter and too heavy. And I thought, what about all these ale drinkers when they go into Indian restaurants? They must be drinking these awful lagers and hating the experience as much as I do. And what about the restaurant owner? They could actually sell us more beer and more food. And I spotted a business opportunity. By the way, when I say Indian restaurants, two-thirds are actually owned and run by Bangladeshis. The other one-third are Pakistanis, Sri Lankans, Nepalese, and Indians. Um, so I refer to them overall as Indian restaurants. So that's when this idea evolved, that one day I would produce my own beer. It would have all the refreshing qualities of a lager and be as smooth and as easy to drink as an ale. Quite simple, really. Oh, and by the way, it would accompany all food, and especially Indian food. I mean, the difficulty with, with, with entrepreneurship um, is not necessarily the ideas. It's the action and executing them. And invariably, you've got all the odds stacked against you. And I, I started telling you the story when I was talking about a recession. And I said, there's opportunity at any time. Well, my timing was brilliant. Immaculate, actually. June 1990 is when the first container of Cobra beer brewed in Bangalore arrived on the shores of Great Britain, Southampton. June 1990 is when the recession started. I didn't know it at the time. And uh, it looks like this recession is going to be worse than that one. You hear of immigrants who come to this country. I had five pounds in my pocket, and now look at me. I'm a multimillionaire. Well, I had 20,000 pounds of student debt to pay off. <laughs> Everything's stacked against you. The one thing I did have to my advantage was my education. I had a degree from India. I had a degree from here. I was a qualified chartered accountant. I had my education. So I knew if all else failed, I could always get a job as a lawyer and accountant. Um, anyway, we won't talk about that. It's some great, great professions. Um, I was hoping for some support from my family in India. And... Uh, I knew my father wouldn't be able to support me with any money. My father was in the Indian Army, and the Indian Army in those days, they got paid very, very poorly. Um, my father always said I didn't have to persuade my sons to not join the Army. All I had to do was show them my paycheck. <laughs> um, so I thought at least my father would give me some emotional and moral support. Well, you must be joking. And I was in India. And he'd by now become commander-in-chief of the Central Indian Army, commanding 350,000 people. And I said, Dad, Dad, um, you know, I'm starting my own beer brand, my own business. Isn't it great? And he looked at me. What are you doing? <laughs> All this education. And you're becoming an import-export voila. <laughs> Get a proper job. Become a banker. Don't <laughs> Um, and, you know, it was tough. It was really difficult. I mean, we, our first company car, and I'm not exaggerating any of this. Our first company car was uh, a battered Citroen de Chevaux. You know the ones with cars that look like people? Um, and I borrowed 295 pounds from my business partner at the time to, to buy the car. And we called it Albert. And Albert could carry exactly 15 cases of Cobra um, if there was just the driver, no one else in the car. And you, you needed to push start it every day. And you could see the, um, as you were driving along, it's quite fun. You see the road through the holes in the floor of the car. <laughs> and we would park this car a little bit ahead um, of the Indian restaurants so they wouldn't see the delivery vehicle of the most expensive ever Indian beer. So it was tough. It wasn't, wasn't easy. And of course, we were up against giants. I mean, giants, not just in terms of marketing expenditure, 
but ancient giants. I mean, Stella Artois, for example, founded in the 14th century. Now, I'm proud to say we're the fastest growing world beer brand in the UK. But the journey has been anything but smooth. Now, entrepreneurship is about taking the path less traveled. It is about going against the grain. It is about zagging when everyone else zigs. It is about non-stop restlessness. The saying of, it ain't broke, don't fix it, we're all brought up with that. Well, that is appropriate at times. But with entrepreneurship, it's non-stop restless innovation. Now, I believe that now this country is in a position to take advantage of that. Not when I first came here in the early 80s. In the early 80s, the term entrepreneurship conjured up images of Del Boy and secondhand car salesmen. Um, today, we all know entrepreneurship is celebrated. Um, Dragon's Den, uh, uh, even old Sir Allen's um, program, the, yeah, the Apprentice. Enterprise Week that takes place every year. It started in 2004, 1,000 events around the country. Now, we know the last Enterprise Week, there were tens of thousands of events around the world in Global Entrepreneurship Week, which was launched from Britain, this country just a quarter of a century ago that didn't even know, celebrate the term entrepreneurship. So we've come a long way. So what are the good qualities of an entrepreneur? Is it important to be educated <coughs> to be a good entrepreneur? Well, the honest answer to that, it's not really essential. Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard. Michael Dell dropped out of Texas. Richard Branson barely finished school. Alan Sugar celebrates the fact that he never went to university. Well, my view is that it may not be essential, but I wouldn't have given up my education for anything. Because not only did I love it, not only did I learn a lot, not only did I make some of the best friends in my life, lifelong friends, and the experience of it, but it is a fallback because sadly not all businesses succeed. It is your passport to the future. So I always say when I, as a national champion for graduate entrepreneurship, I always say start a business but don't give up your studies. Um, there was an article by, uh, about James Kahn, a friend of mine who's one of the dragons, Dragon's Den, just, just this week. And in it, he says very openly that his one regret is that he didn't go to university. Um, I have one regret. I try not to regret too much, but I have one regret. And that is, with all my education, I thought, that's it. All my education is behind me now. It's just being a businessman, being an entrepreneur, building businesses. I couldn't have been more wrong. In 1998, I went to Cranfield, the business school there, and did the business growth program. And that changed my life and changed my business's life. And I realized the value of lifelong learning. I realized that the learning never, ever stops. I got so much out of that course, which is a mini MBA. Um, you did an MBA. You went to INSEAD, I think. Did, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it was fantastic. And since then, I've gone back on courses at Cranfield. I've since become an alumnus of the London Business School. I go to Harvard Business School every year. I've been going for seven years in a row now. And I take that time out, however busy I am in Parliament, in my work, being Chancellor of University, all the things that I do, I take that time out to go and learn. And every time I come back absolutely enthused. And for eight years after I started my business, for those eight years, I did no lifelong learning. And I missed those eight years. So I say to you, when you finish your studies, doesn't finish there. It carries on learning, learning, learning forever. And one of my favorite sayings is of uh, President Clinton's, the more you learn, the more you earn. <laughs> now, leadership. I've been asked to talk to you a bit about leadership. Um, because Richard Branson has sort of um, often said that entrepreneurship is, is really a mindset. It's an attitude of defiance um, and a conviction to lead. Now, you know, what is this? Uh, I went to a breakfast meeting this morning that discussed the concept of an authentic leader. You know, what is an authentic leader? 
and the London Business School, two professors did some research on an authentic leader. And they found that there is no typical leader. You have effective leaders, but the type of leaders who are effective are all sorts. Some are louder than, you know, larger than life characters. Others are quiet, softly spoken, very shy, timid, but hugely effective. There is no typecast. But there is one, there are common threads, and that is authentic leaders will actually visibly show their faults because that's human. We all have faults. A lot of people try and hide them. A lot of authentic leaders, their faults are pretty visible, and I won't go into that in a lot of detail. Um, charisma. How many leaders do you know who are charismatic and inspirational? Of course there are some. Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. It's very rare to get both qualities in a leader. And another way of, of, of expressing it is, does it express your deepest passions, your sincerest commitments? Um, it is leadership that demonstrates the authority and virtue of decisiveness, but remains open to introspection and failure. It's an organizational structure that rewards courage rather than conformity. And it's a relationship that inspires through respect, not subservience, and trust, not manipulation. So strong, there's also this dichotomy of leadership, the yin and yang of, of leadership. Uh, strong direction has to be tempered by the solicitation of truth. Passion can never be allowed to sink to arrogance or hubris. Decisiveness must never come at the expense of context. The bigger picture must not be detached from the detail. And leadership necessitates humility as much as it necessitates confidence. So I've always, and I use this uh, saying that I love, that good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment there's no shortcut to making the mistakes and learning from the mistakes. And then the difference between leadership and management. You know, MBA. You know, Masters of Business Administration. How many MBAs actually start their own businesses? Most of them end up being managers. Yeah, now there's a big difference between, and we need both. We need leaders, we need managers. So what is the difference between the two? And they're expressed in various ways. I mean, I'll give you a few examples. Whereas management entails planning and budgeting, leadership provides direction and vision. Whereas management involves staffing, leadership aligns people. Whereas management is control and problem solving, leadership is motivation and inspiration. And whereas management entails predictability and order, leadership is all about change. And of course, there's a classic saying, the management is about doing things right, and leadership is about doing the right thing. So um, then the sad thing is that the biggest barrier to the growth of entrepreneurial businesses, one big barrier, the entrepreneur himself or herself because people find it difficult to let go. And people are threatened to take on people who are better than they are. Now, I believe you've got to be a bit of an all-rounder. Um, in my business, I love production. I love sales. I love marketing. I even love finance. But my finance director has just won two years running Young Finance Director of the Year in the whole of this country. It's a far better finance director than I could dream of. My marketing director was a marketing director of Tropicana at Pepsi, and you know the success of Tropicana much better than I could ever be. My sales directors are way better than I could ever be, and my production director is the best in the world at what he does. And the secret is continually getting the best people, much better than you are, and then get them working together in an aligned manner as a team. And then it's unbeatable. Now, entrepreneurship and profit. You know, this cliched triple 
triple bottom line, people, planet, profits. Oh dear, profits, dirty word. Well, without the profits, you can't do anything. So, you know, that, that whole contribution to the economy, if you think about it, businesses create the wealth that enables us to live the lives we live. The employment, the taxes, that pay for the public services that we all benefit from. It all comes from business. And it all starts with entrepreneurship. But it's got to be done in the right way. And um, I would, there's another saying of mine that I love that, uh, that I've heard, not my saying, heard, heard it. Um, it's it's not, not about being the best in the world at what you do. It's about being the best for the world. And there's no better to, person to speak about those sort of things than Mahatma Gandhi. And he, um, as part of his moral lessons, he drew a list of, of, of seven sins. Anyone here heard of Mahatma Gandhi's seven sins before? One, two? Okay, for the rest of you. Politics without principle. Well, you see that all the time. Um, wealth without work. You don't see that much. Pleasure without conscience. Knowledge without character. Science without humanity. Worship without sacrifice. And the last sin, commerce without morality. That's the one I'm really talking about here. And the greatest entrepreneurs, you hear the stories of the great philanthropists, and you go back to the Victorian times in the 19th century, you know, like Joseph Rountree, people who gave away their wealth in their lifetimes, like Bill Gates is doing today. The difference that they make, not just in their lifetimes, but in generations <laughs> to come. We all now know the name Tata, the Indian company that bought Chorus British Steel, that bought Jaguar Land Rover. Tata was practicing corporate social responsibility a century ago when Jamshedi Tata, the founder of Tata, introduced an eight-hour workday. Didn't exist in those days. Introduced leave with pay. A company retirement fund. I mean, these things we all take for granted, but in those days they didn't exist. And he was one of the greatest entrepreneurs that has ever existed. And at COBRA, in our own small way, we've tried to do this. Um, we, when I started a foundation, the COBRA Foundation, uh, three years ago, I was shocked how few British companies have their own foundation. It's a very small number that actually do. And this whole attitude of putting back into the community, it's an attitude. It's not something you can order people to do. When it works, it happens. In, 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 I'll give you one small example. In South Africa, um, our, our team over there found that the empty bottles of beer were just being collected by the bars, the restaurants, and just thrown away. And they discovered a homeless shelter called the Carpenter Shop. And they collected the empty bottles from the bars and restaurants, gave them to the Carpenter Shop, where they sawed off the top of the bottles, smoothened the edges, and converted it into a glass. And our bottles, if you know, are very embossed with those icons on them. And they looked like a heavily embossed, decorated glass. And then they started selling these glasses. So not only are we recycling the bottles, but they're giving income to the homeless shelter. And I use these glasses every day over here. They're fantastic. And they, they're bought by some of the top hotels in South Africa. But it's a small example of how that attitude is there. You can really make a difference. So social entrepreneurs today contribute 27 billion pounds a year um, in revenue over here in the UK. They contribute 8 billion to our economy, uh, which is fantastic. So I think that leadership to enterprise is at its best when it's leadership through service to the community as well. Um, now, this is all very well. But look at what is happening today in this country. I've spoken about leadership. I've spoken about putting back in the community. I've spoken about entrepreneurship. Look at the financial sector. Financial sector, the banking sector, it's meant to be the oil, the oil that oils the cogs of industry, the wheels of industry, the wheels of commerce. 
the fuel that enables us to function. Sadly, it's become an industry in itself. It's equivalent to the journalist becoming the story. And what banks, with the huge rewards, turned out to taking irresponsible risk, a free feeding frenzy of the derivative products of securitized and repackaged and repackaged and repackaged debt, of the hypocrisy when as a business, if your equity to debt ratio was one to one, the bank is happy to lend to you. The moment your equity was one and your debt was two, oh, you became a bit risky as a business to lend to. And what have we discovered? Those very banks themselves, their equity to debt ratios under some measures, one is to 66. Absolute hypocrisy. And with the revoking of the Glass-Steagall Act in the United States, the banks merged their investment and commercial arms together and their primary function as lenders gave way to risky gambling. And the profits from so many of these so-called investments have now proven to be illusionary, the momentum unsustainable, and the damage, as we all know, all too real. And we all know about the grilling that's taken place by the Select Committee in the House of Commons. I shouldn't say House of Commons, in the other place. Um, uh, just shows how detached the leadership of the banks have become from the rest of their staff, how ill-informed they have. I was asked when I was on Newsnight the other night, if you had one question to ask these leaders of the banks, what, what would it be? And my question was, I would ask them, hand on heart, did you and your directors truly understand the derivative instruments, the magnitude of them, the complexity of them, and the effect of them? Because I believe they didn't. They were so complex. And I believe that they were so ill-informed that their portfolios, I believe it's been negligent. And they've actually strained completely away from their primary purpose to lend responsibly. And then we heard of that case in the select committee of one of the banks where their group head of regulatory risk warned them warned them over four years ago that the bank was taking on excessive and irresponsible risk. And what was their response? They sacked him. And they gagged him. And only now has he spoken out, saying it's in public interest that you know what happened to me. So I think this is a sickening abuse of leadership. And as this crisis carries on, the sad thing is the genuine entrepreneurs, the genuine SMEs, the genuine businesses with good business models who've had no fault in this crisis that we have are going to the wall week by week. Companies are finding it impossible to borrow money. The financial sector has frozen. What started with the subprime crisis in America has spread to the financial sector, has spread to the real economy, has spread to a global crisis, and now we have this reverberation between the real economy and the financial sector going on into a downward spiral. And the government is desperately trying to unfreeze it. And at the time like this, we have the shocking news that one of these banks is now uh, not only having to make people redundant, as many companies are, but is adding insult to injury by paying a billion pounds of bonuses. I'm nothing against bonuses. This bank having already taken over 20 billion pounds of our money, and I think this get-rich-quick bonus culture, bonuses when they're deserved is fine, and there are a lot of people probably in that bank who deserve their bonuses, but a lot of those bonuses are going to be people who absolutely do not deserve them. And it's wrong that bankers who've always made pots of money, and now it's out of pots of our money. And I think people feel very strongly about that. So I think that the strong feelings, um, but it's not just the banks. It's also the regulation. It's also the government to blame. When Gordon Brown and the Labour Party made the Bank of England independent, in terms of the Independent Monetary Policy Committee, we all celebrated that as a fantastic move. 
because the NPC every month proactively, reactively sets the interest rates and has tried to control inflation. Now that's been a terrific move, but at the same time, they removed the powers of the Bank of England and moved them to the FSA. And what we have found now, as this crisis has unfolded, that the FSA has shown itself to be utterly, utterly incompetent and asleep on the job. To the extent that they spotted some of these banks, and Northern Rock was spotted in 2006, January, and they marked it for review, you know when? About now. <laughs> and the Treasury, the FSA, the Bank of England, in the nice decade, as Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, called it, it was a happy merry-go-round. Now it's become a miserable blame-go-round. And we've got the banking bill going through Parliament at the moment, um, and sadly, I do not think it addresses the whole issue. So things don't look very good. I'm not going to sort of stand here and say everything's going to be great. By the way, there was a little bit of good news. Jim O'Neill, the, the chief economist of Goldman Sachs, who's a friend of mine, wrote a great article today. Um, it's worth reading if you want a bit of brightening up, where he thinks the recession's not going to last for that long, and uh, things are going to get better soon. Well, I hope Jim's right. Um, <laughs> And it is entrepreneurs who are the backbone of an economy. It is SMEs that are the engine of an economy. And out of the tough times, I believe, um, good will emerge. And I believe in building a business. It's always been about turning disadvantages into advantages, obstacles into opportunities, threats into opportunities. And out of this adversity, I think we will get the next generation of hugely successful entrepreneurs emerging. I'm confident of that. Uh, and I'm confident as long as we are innovative, we will get there. And I do believe this country now has that spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation. And that wonderful saying of success is how high you bounce back when you hit bottom. Well, you can't get more bottom than where we are now and where we're going to be for the next while. But it is about bouncing back from that. And I'll conclude with my vision at Cobra Beer. A uh, mission, I'll start with first. Mission to brew the finest ever Indian beer and make it a global beer brand. Every, every business has got a mission. Mission's a goal, you need to measure it. You know, are you the finest ever Indian beer? Oh, of course we are. <laughs> in fact, we're one of the best beers in the world, and I'm proud of it. Um, so we're, we're actually ahead of, ahead of that part of our mission. Are we a global beer brand? Brewed in Belgium, brewed here, brewed in India, exported to 50 countries in the world. Nowhere near. Nowhere near a global beer brand. But we're on that journey. We're less than 20 years old. And we're doing well, but a long way to go. So we can keep measuring our progress. But more important than the mission is the vision. The vision is what you live by, breathe by, your attitude. And our vision, and I, I borrowed and adapted my great-grandfather, who was a great inspiration to me, his motto, which was to aspire and achieve. It's on my coat of arms now. And our vision at Cobra is to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. And if you think about it, that's the definition of entrepreneurship. You come up with an idea. You want to get somewhere with that idea. You've invariably got all the odds stacked against you. You've invariably got little or no means. And you go out there, and you make it happen. And you make it happen with integrity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was an incredibly inspirational speech, just looking at the faces all around the audience. Um, now, I'm going to take a few minutes to ask a few questions, and then it's over to you, as normal, to ask your questions. First of all, let's start with the overall economy. Just a couple of questions on that, and then I'd like to delve down into your own experience, if I may. You talk about entrepreneurs pulling us out of this recession, and you talk about the banks and the global crisis, and we know the banks aren't lending. How are entrepreneurs going to pull us out of this global recession unless the banks start lending again, unless there's funding out there? And, and, and this, as we speak now, is the biggest obstacle. And I, I personally thought that by Christmas, mm -hmm. by before the end of last year, 
that um, the financial markets would unfreeze and the banks would start lending again. I mean, you can't fault the government here or in the United States with the amount of resource that they've put behind it. I mean, when Northern Rock went, went bust and had to be bailed out, um, it was 25 billion pounds, 25 billion pounds that was required. And at that time, I remember saying that was more a year ago, exactly a year ago, than any government anywhere in the world had spent to rescue any institution. The magnitude of it. That now seems like a drop in the ocean. Now we're used to trillions of dollars being required. And the problem is that it's a bit of a catch-22 because you've got the banks who, as I said, in extreme cases, are so highly geared that if the value of your assets dropped, if you think about it, one is to 66, do the maths. <laughs> doesn't take much of a drop in your assets to wipe you out. And so if you, if you don't have, and, and then you've also made bad investments, and the, those, do you know that a year ago, in 2008 January, there were under a dozen AAA rated companies in the whole world. Do you know how many AAA rated securitized instruments there were? 64,000. We lost all sense of any proportional reality. And these AAA ratings were given on the basis of some amazing professor's calculations. Oh, by the way, that missed out the possibility of markets dropping and values dropping. AIG got wiped out. There are trillions of dollars of these CDRs that are still to unfold. They will carry on unfolding this year and the next year. How can one expect banks? when they're in a position now where they've taken money from governments, often expensive money, when they've got bad assets, bad loans, they're trying to unwind to also lend. So it's, it's a very difficult, and the, the government is trying to order them to do it. And even the banks that it owns, virtually owns completely, it can't make them do it. So they're going to have to do something drastic. It may involve nationalizing the banks. It may involve setting up not just toxic banks that take on the toxic assets, but actually brand new banks where you just clean new banks that don't have to worry and that can follow a good banking model, have a ratio of 1 is to 10, 1 is to 12, and start lending. I think they're going to have to move quicker because at the moment it's knee-jerk reactions, and in the United States in particular, those reactions happen over a weekend. Panic on the Friday, by the Sunday you announce a new initiative of another hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and I think that you can't help feel they're trying, but it's not working. And people keep talking about confidence. There is no confidence. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. There is no confidence. To be an entrepreneur, you have to be confident, don't yeah. you? You talked about being restless, about passion, but you have to be confident. If you're thinking, this may work, it may not work, you're never going to make it as an entrepreneur. Again, where do you get confidence from in the present and I think, environment? And I think this is where if whatever business you're in, you're, you're confident about your own business. And, and uh, you know, at the moment, uh, the beer market in this country, the latest statistics up to the end of December, the beer market has dropped by 8% year on year. 8? 8% drop. You know, all this thing, people drown their sorrows, they drink more. I mean, it's not, <laughs> not real. Um, it's dropped by 8%. Our sales, in the last six months have increased by 21% year on year. In January, our sales increased by 44% year on year. Now, that's not a mistake, that's not luck, that's not just because it's such a lovely product. Um, <laughs> it's because of a strategy that we've put in place and a fantastic team working in a line manner, executing a strategy day after day after day, trying extra hard, being innovative, and that innovation doesn't stop. And the worst thing is when you're scared and when you have no confidence, the tendency is to shrink in a corner, put your head in the sand, get into a bunker mentality. That's the time when you've got to bounce back. That's the time when you've got to be extra innovative. You've got to try even harder. And I always say it may have dropped by 8%. There's still 92% to go for. You talked about um, success being how high you bounce back when you hit bottom. You must have hit bottom once or twice with tremendous success stories that I can't believe it wasn't very tough along the way. What were the really tough times, and how did you bounce back? Well, it's always been tough. I mean, now is a very tough time with the, with the inability of a fast-growing company like ours. We need finance to grow, and it's very, very difficult mm -hmm. to raise any money, and the banks have frozen. So 
I mean, this is a very tough time for everybody. Uh, when we, we've had various incidents over the years um, where we've constantly, you know, you, you're growing, you need to, to raise money, you can't raise that money, um, and uh, you, you, know, you despair. In one case, I, I'll never forget that we had a, a share issue, and we were running out of money, but we just about managed to start raising money through so the share issue. It was fully subscribed, and the money was about to start coming in. Our accountants were Grant Thornton, very well-known firm of accountants. And it was the equivalent of today, Thursday. I spoke to the bank manager. We were out of money. So please, this share issue is put to bed. The money's going to start coming in from next week. You have to trust me. He wouldn't. And he bounced our checks. And of course, the money started coming in from the Monday. Now, when you get your checks bouncing at that time, you're down in the dumps. Mm -hmm. But because we, our integrity was there, we knew it was coming in. And, that, and of course, the day that share issue finished, I moved the bank straight away to another bank. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we used to run out of money constantly. Um, in the early days, I remember when, very early days, we were uh, living and working in the same roof conversion, Fulham Palace Road, sort of second and third floor. We'd, we'd carry a whole ton of beer up three flights of stairs. A, a pallet of beer, 72 cases, weighs exactly a ton. Very fit going up and down there. <laughs> and we were, the dining room table was the office table. And I remember one day, and my partner Arjun and I were, were sitting there, and I, I can picture it because it was the, the sun was going down, it was shining on the trees outside the window. And I looked in my wallet. I'm not exaggerating any of this. There were pennies. Every credit card was up to its limit. All our bank accounts were way over their limit. Our local bank manager, Nat West in those days, um, he was coming up to retirement age, and he'd let our overdraft limit go twice its limit. He said, if you don't pay me, I lose my pension. <laughs> you know? But he trusted us, and I'll never forget that. Now, when you're in that position, you're down in the dumps for nothing. You're literally down to pennies. Do you feel down in the dumps? You bet you do. <laughs> but next day, you wake up and you find a way out of it. And what is it that kept you going? Was it the mission and the vision? The, what keeps you going is that it goes back to when you start in, in business. Mm. Invariably, I started. What did I know about making beer? Nothing. I knew about drinking it. <laughs> and you, know, you, you, you started business. What is it that makes people finance you and supply you? You buy from you when nobody knows you, nobody knows your product. You have zero credibility. And I believe they do those things if you have complete and utter passion and faith and confidence in your idea and in yourself. Because that gives people the confidence and the faith to trust you, to give you a chance. So it is that belief in what you're doing. Now, you're clearly very passionate about Cobra, but do you think if it hadn't been Cobra, there would have been another idea? Would you have oh, become yeah. an entrepreneur or whatever? Well, it makes it a little easier with beer, but... Um, <laughs> No, I, I think that whatever your business, you know, if it's making better coat hangers, you've got to be passionate about your coat hangers. Uh, and we, we, before we started Cobra, we got practice doing a lot of other projects. And many of them were dead ends. Um, some of them were, like, I used to import polo sticks um, from India. And now you can imagine the polo stick market is a giant market. <laughs> um, but I used to buy the sticks from India for two pounds and sell them to Harrods for 15 pounds. I've never made margins like that again. Um, but it got me experience and got me started in, in business. Now, my last question, um, and then we'll throw it open. I'd just like to know what, when you were this age and thinking about entrepreneurship, what were the things you wish you had known? Um, well, I, I think that for a start, I think you're very, in spite of the economic environment today, I think you're all really lucky because the amount of support that there is out there to help young people in particular start in business. Government initiatives, university initiatives, and we spoke at the National Council for Graduate Entrepreneurship. There is so much help and advice out there um, that we didn't have. So that's the first thing. Next thing is, I mean, events like this. I didn't have events like this. You know, they didn't exist. And when I was at Cranfield, my favorite sessions were when alumni and, and entrepreneurs who'd been through the program came back and told their stories and share their successes and their mistakes and learnings. Um, but, but, you know, there is a reality. Things always take a little longer than you, you know, you, you, you plan. 
Um, and you've always got, and, and cash flow forecasting is in times like this, you've got to keep looking ahead um, and, and forecasting and being on top of things. Uh, so, um, but I was determined to start my own business and I have no regrets. I, I'm, I'm so lucky that I did. And so we. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And not King Cobra. Yeah. It, there, we have a King Cobra. We do. Why Cobra? You know, I get asked this question regularly. Um, it, it's one of those uh, examples of you know, that saying I said about good judgment from experience and experience from bad judgment. Well, that was one of my mistakes. Um, no, not Cobra. <laughs> uh, the, when, when we created this beer, we created it from scratch. So the whole brew, product, everything from scratch. And I worked with Dr. Karepa, who's now a production director, uh, who spent six years in the Czech Republic, had a you know, PhD in, in brewing. I mean, there's chemists, scientists. So with him, I developed the beer. And then the name, I could chosen any name. We went through hundreds and hundreds of names. And we chose Panther, <laughs> as in leopard. I went to Bangalore, um, and my partner Arjun held the fort in London. And we got the, did a lot of research. And then we got the label designed by a British design company. And it was panther beer. And I can picture it now talking to you. It was the eye of a black panther. Very cool. So I took it, gave it to the printers. And I said to the printers, look, I'm going to focus on developing the liquid and the, all the other packaging elements. When we're about to bottle the beer, the brewery will inform you and just print the labels. And I forgot about it. I just focused on the liquid. Two weeks away from bottling, I got a frantic phone call. It was in the evening in Bangalore. And remember, we're five and a half hours behind over here. Um, a frantic phone call from my partner, Arjun, saying, God, God, we've got a problem, problem. We're trying to pre-sell the first container before it's shipped. I said, great, go for it, good. He said, except nobody likes the name Panther. <laughs> so I said, why are you telling me this now? You know, it's a bit late. He said, no, no, what do we do? What do we do? Nobody likes it. So we'd had a discussion on the phone. The first reaction was, what do we care what they think? We chose Panther. We'll stick with Panther. <laughs> so then uh, better sense prevailed. And I said, uh, Arjun, just remind me, what was the second? Uh, he said, I've already done that. The second choice name was Cobra. I said, yeah, yeah I remembered Cobra. I said, I'll tell you what, you try out Cobra, and I'll go and see if they haven't printed the labels tomorrow morning. So the first thing I did the following morning was rush to the printers. And of course, people leave things to last minute. They hadn't printed the labels. Stop the presses, you know, so don't print them. By that evening, I got a call from Arjun. And he said, they love Cobra. I got on a plane to Hyderabad. My brother had an advertising agency. And we redesigned the whole beer from scratch and designed this Cobra beer. We delayed the whole project. We lost time. We lost money. But it's the best decision that I ever made because it's our most valuable asset. And the lesson there is, as an entrepreneur, you come up with the idea, but you never go forward without testing it with the consumer first. And of course, Cobra's been a great name. You know, I mean, uh, it's short, sharp, punchy, memorable. It's, it's really cool and contemporary, but it feels as if it's been around forever. You know, I've met retired British Army colonels who were in India. I remember Cobra before the war. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't exist. When, when you came to the UK, you said you only had your one car with these beers, and um, and you were facing all these big giants out there, and you just used to have your little label at the time. What strategy did you implement to face these big giants yeah. okay. and, and convince these shops or restaurants to take your beer? <coughs> yeah. The, the that was the first question. First question. Okay, should I answer that first? And then yes. if you can remember your second one, then I'll answer that. Well, let's have the second one now. I'll write it down because Gordon Brown forgot his second one today. He's okay. the person asking it, so. Um, well, looking, looking back at your whole business sorry. strategy and um, um, your whole, um, well, yeah, the, the whole business growth in the past 20 years, what would you have liked to improve? Coming, going back 20 years ago, which 
um, which one thing would you have changed? Okay. Well, if I say, what, I'll answer the second one first. What would I like to have improved? It would have been nice to have had some money to start off with, <laughs> other than 20,000 pounds of student debt to pay off. But I tell you, the good thing about not having the money is it forces you to grow uh, a brand from the grassroots. And there is no stronger way. I mean, our first item of marketing, we couldn't even afford beer glasses. Our first item was a table card we would put on the tables explaining the story of Cobra Beer um, and the idea behind it. And you know, we couldn't even afford full color. It was in green and black printing. My brother's agency designed it. We used to get them made in India. But we punched above our weight everything that we did. And people discovered the product, and then they would recommend it to their friends, and, and it spread by word of mouth. And then it was eight years before we could afford our first marketing campaign. And it was only five years ago that we first started to advertise on television. And today, you see Cobra on TV every day. And Dave, you know, Channel Dave, every day. Um, so, but we continue to punch above our weight. But our strategy was very, quite a simple strategy. Indian food was getting very popular. 1950s, handful of Indian restaurants. By 1980, um, 70, by the early 70s, about 1,500. By 1980, 3,000. By 1990, when we started Cobra, 6,000 Indian restaurants. And today, there are 10,000. So the most popular drink with Indian food, beer. And so I said, if I can get my beer onto the tables of the Indian restaurants, and we brought it in the big, do you know, you know the big bottles of Cobra? Those are the only size we could import in the early days. So we put these big bottles on the tables. And the restaurant owners initially were quite resistant to it because they weren't used to it. We said, look, just put them on the table because first, your waiters can leave them on the table like bottles of wine so people will help themselves. The waiters can go and do whatever else they want to do, freeze up your waiters. Next thing is, it's the authentic way that beer is sold in India because in India, to this day, 99% of beer is sold in those big double-sized bottles. Next is a double-sized bottle. You're selling double the amount of beer in one go to your customers. You make more money. Uh, and of course, we didn't even talk about the extra smooth, less gassy taste of Cobra, which that's another matter. Um, and then we said, oh, and because it's a big bottle of beer on the tables, people will share it amongst themselves. Like with Indian food, quite often you put dishes in the middle and people share. And it's a nicer way to drink and sharing atmosphere. Oh, and by the way, people at other tables will say, what's that they're drinking? It looks like a bottle of wine. It's not a bottle of wine, it's a bottle of beer. I'll try some. And it spreads like wildfire around the restaurants. So that obstacle we turned into advantage. Then I said, when people get to know our beer on the restaurant tables, and everyone goes to Indian restaurants, how many of you eat Indian food regularly? Yeah, just about everybody. And it's every, everywhere you segment the market, ABC1, age, you know, whatever demographics you use, area, everyone goes to Indian restaurants. So I said, everyone will discover my beer, and then one day I'll get it on the supermarket shelves. And then they'll buy it on the supermarket shelves initially to drink with Indian food, and then they'll buy it because they love the beer. And then I'll get into the pubs and the bars. That's exactly what we've done. Today, the Indian restaurants are still growing, but are less than a third of our sales. Supermarkets are a third of our sales, and the pubs and the bars are increasing. And I always say, without the support of the Indian restaurants, we wouldn't be where we are today. Yes, at the back. Hi. Um, you said one of the keys to entrepreneurship is innovation. Um, does innovation mean keeping things as simple as possible, or does it mean thinking outside the box? You know, um, the simplest definition of innovation is coming up with ideas and making them happen. Uh, when, I was, when I was at school, uh, I was told very clearly by my teachers and my, my family, you're not creative, because I couldn't draw. I was useless at art, and I was, I mean. Uh, so that means you're not creative. And I just written fact, I'm not creative. And I've realized the most important skill in life is the ability to be creative. One of the most important skills in starting a business is being creative. Now, whether you call that thinking outside the box, whether you call that lateral thinking, whether you call that, um, you know, however you describe it, being creative is essential. And we all have that ability. And you have to have, to have that confidence to, be to unleash that creative spirit. And isn't it sad that in the accountancy profession, the word creative is a negative word? Creative accounting? <laughs> but you were suggesting that you have to be quite contrarian. You're zigging when everyone else is zagging. You do. You, you have to have to 
as you, you call it, thinking outside the box, but you're always finding a different way of doing something. And it's, and it's that persistence and, and you know, the never giving up attitude that quite often unleashes these creative ideas. Um, and, and that whole eureka moment, there's a lot of analysis and research that's been done into, Cambridge professor once talked about the eureka moment where you know, in your studies or whatever, you're intensely working at a problem and trying to solve a problem and you're getting nowhere. And if you keep persisting, you get more and more nowhere. And it takes you to go to that bath or the shower or whatever, and suddenly the penny drops. And you have that detachment from intensity. But if that intensity is not there to start off with, you won't get the penny dropping. How many questions can we fit? I know you have to run away, but. No, I'll carry on to as long as you. Okay, fantastic. For entrepreneurial. Um, innovations that often there's many many ways but there are often two distinctive ways of doing it there's um, refining a product or technology be it consumer products or anything there's one way is to refine them to a point that you feel it's perfect and then you push it out to business another way is just just to just sort of push it out and then keep refining it as you go along how do you sort of see this difference how do you approach it and how did Cobra approach this okay the, the, the question is um, I can sort of identify it's about you know when do you launch your, your idea? Do you, do you sort of get your product or your idea absolutely right and then you start and start selling it? Um, or do you, you know, do you just put it in the marketplace and then keep improving it? Um, I did a, a bit of a hybrid. Um, what I did was the first batch of beer that was brewed, I knew this taste in my mind and I communicated it to the, to the brewmaster. And the way, one of the ways I did that was in those days you could carry liquids in your, in your bag, hand luggage. I had 20 bottles of beer in my hand luggage to India. And they carefully selected bottles of different beers where there were characteristics that I liked and didn't like about those beers. And I spent hours in the laboratory with the brewmaster trying to communicate using those beers of what this taste in my mind was, this extra smooth, less gassy taste. So we did all that. We brewed the first batch. And it wasn't really what I wanted. But it was a start. It had the smoothness, but it was a little too sweet. I said, let's get it out. Got it into the market, got feedback from consumers, tweaked the taste a bit, did the second batch, tweaked the taste a bit, did the third batch. We did six batches, got consumer feedback. December 1990, we've never changed the taste since then. And 100 years from now, I hope Cobra Beer tastes exactly like it does today. But that initial tweaking and feedback from the consumers, listening to customers. And I assume it happened, it happened at a really yeah. fast pace as well. It happened very quickly. And the confidence you get, by the way, is when you get your reorders, then you know it's going to work. And you just have to extrapolate that. Yes. Um, Asians often characterized by sort of an entrepreneurial spirit as having that. Um, did your background help you and drive you in a positive manner? And I guess more importantly, um, did your background ever work against you? Especially when you're going up against the biggest giants, they might have looked, looked down upon you. So positive and negative, how did your Asian background help you? So the, the, did my Asian background help me? Um, you know, I mean, if you, people ask me often about Asian values. And if I had to generalize and summarize Asian values, I would say um, the importance of family, education, really important, and hard work. And Asians on the whole in this country and around the world, when you look at it, India, there is an, a reputation for being entrepreneurial. I think it's very individual. In my case, my father's side of family were military. My mother's side of family were a business family. And my great-grandfather had created his own business from scratch and was an entrepreneur. And he was a great influence and a role model to me. Um, and, and it helps if you have somebody close to you who is a role model who can inspire you. And if it's a family member, all the better. Um, but you know, it can be meeting somebody who's, who's, who's in it. So it does help to have that inspiration. Negative, I, the only negative I can, I can remember was I remember once going to see a buyer um, and um, uh, she, she, she sort of said, uh, and you're trying to sell me this beer. And it was, I'm not going to name which company it was. It was very large. They had thousands of pubs. I was trying to get into their pubs. And she said, Indian beer? Mm, Put her nose up to it. So in Mexico, they've been brewing beer for over 100 years. And German beer in Belgium, you don't Indian beer. And she just turned her nose up at it. Um, well, I'd love to meet her 
today. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no my team are trying to get me away. Look, we'll go until quarter past, and then we'll stop. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Let's have some really good. Let's self-censor, then. Who's got some good questions? Really excellent. Have they been good so far? Absolutely. Go no, on. Very good. When you talk about talent, is how, how do you find the, the people? How do you know that those who are available, this, this one is the best one that you actually build the team? OK. Um, I think that. We have a, a principle when we're, we're taking on people. We, we hire for will rather than skill. It's the attitude. Ideally both, of course. Uh, but it's the attitude that counts. And, and you can feel that. You can see it. And I'll give you an extreme example of it um, as quickly as I can. When in, in 2003, we're trying to recruit our first two salespeople. And just started the business, um, and we interviewed put an advert in the evening stand. We had 100 applicants, and we chose our first two. The person who came third said, please, please give me a chance. And we said, look, we can only afford to take on two. We really can't. I'm sorry. And he said, please, I, can, I know I can do this. And he persevered. And let me tell you about him. He'd come over from Pakistan on asylum. He was working in an off license. His English was terrible. He said, I don't need a car. I don't need expenses. What's the target? Just give me a chance. He said, OK, we'll give you a chance. We sell to it for commission only. Um, what, how much do these two have to sell? So we said, they've got to sell 100 cases of Cobra Bay a week. And how long are you giving them to achieve that target? We said, we're giving them a month. He went out and achieved the target in two weeks. Hmm. We gave him the job. A few weeks later, and this was in Chelsea, we were living above an antique shop. And my wife and I were going out for dinner one night at 9.30. There he was still in, in the sitting room, which was one of the office rooms. And he was on the phone. He said, what are you doing here? Go home. He said, I'd set myself the target of 30 effective calls this evening. I'm on number 26. When I get to 30, I'll let myself out. He became a director of the company. I mean, you know, today he's you know, done incredibly well um, and in his own right is a millionaire. And he started off with an application from the Evening Standard as a commission-only salesperson. And it's that attitude that makes a difference. Can I give us some more um, kind of tangible examples about how you took this off the ground? Uh, times are bad um, or are not as favorable. Um, market is lots of different markets are saturated in their own ways. Um, how did you get this off the ground, and how? Would you translate this experience into advice for today for anyone who is looking to do something? Okay. And who was the who wants to desperately ask another? Go on. Uh, my question was just like, um, how do you keep on going? I mean, you said your vision at the beginning was to make like the best flavor beer and all the rest of it. And you said that you, you hit your target, you got it in the Indian restaurants, you then got it into the supermarkets, you then got it into the pubs. And you want your taste to be remembered 100 years from now. But, um, I mean, how, like, how far do you want to take it? I mean, it's it just you want world domination and then you'll stop? Or, I mean, is it like you then want to divest from something else? Or? Um, if, I, if I just, uh, in, in order, I think that with, with business, new business ideas, uh, there, are, there are, you know, there are two, um, um, two, in simple terms, you can come up with something that invents something no one's ever done before, um, which happens all the time. Or you can do something that is being done, but do it differently and do it better. And I think that scope of doing something differently and better is always, always there. Why? Why did it take me to think an Indian student in Britain to come up with this idea of a, a beer that appealed to lager drinkers and ale drinkers and smooth, smoother, less gassy, goes with food? Why didn't somebody think of that before? Kingfisher, the biggest Indian beer brand, had been here for eight years before we even started. So, so that's one thing. Innovation, 100 years from now, people will come up with a different ways of doing things and new ideas, and people will say, why didn't anyone think of that before? So innovation is something that is continual, and you come across it in the simplest form. 
and I do believe however bad an economic environment is, there is always scope to innovate. And the big advantage that one has today is the internet. The internet just, you can just research things so much easier. You can test things out with people. You can, it's an amazing tool um, that we are scratching the surface in terms of its capability. So I, I really think that, it, that you know, there are, there's lots of scope. And in tough times, it almost forces those good ideas out even more um, through, through the, you know. So that's a, a brief answer to your question. And about, you know, what am, what's my ambition? As I said, to create a global beer brand. And, uh, you know, India is the fastest growing beer market in the world. It's growing at 15% a year. Uh, you know, the per capita consumption of beer in India is one and a quarter liters per person per year. 1.1 billion people. China is almost 30, and it's become the biggest beer market in the world. And India, I believe, will catch up with China. It'll take about 20, 25 years to get up to 25, 30 liters. And that's nothing. I mean, we're at 100 over here. And the Czech Republic's the highest in the world at 165 liters. <laughs> we're not going to get there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It was incredible. <laughs>